You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 25th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up... I pledge that I will serve you with integrity and humility and I will work day in, day out to deliver for the British people. Rishi Sunak becomes the UK's third Prime Minister in seven weeks. But does he have the ability to dig the country out of the hole that it's been left in by his predecessors? Also ahead on today's programme, we'll be finding out how European leaders are attempting to rebuild Ukraine and safeguard its democratic future. Plus, we review the French papers, Vicky Price brings us the latest trade and economy news, and we hear from the Booker Prize winner, George Saunders. You're waiting for the story to kind of rebel a little bit and say, no, you're underestimating me. Sit there until you figure it out. And so when that happens, you, you know the story is going to be uh, surprising to, to you, the writer, which is the, the goal. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The UN's nuclear watchdog will send a team of inspectors to Ukraine following a request from the government in Kyiv. It's been revealed that senior members of Vietnam's ruling Communist Party will visit Beijing next week on the invitation of China's leadership. And the US space agency NASA has announced that it's created a special 16-member panel to study UFO sightings. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, the UK has its fifth Prime Minister in six years, the fastest turnover in a century. Rishi Sunak will be invited to form a government by King Charles III later today after winning the backing of his fellow MPs in an internal Conservative Party race. Well, Michael Bancoli is a doctoral researcher in politics at uh, King's College London and co-host of the podcast Politics Jam. And I'm delighted to say he's in the studio with me now. Hello to you, Michael. Hi, how's it going? Uh, now, it's being rightly celebrated that Britain has a Hindu prime minister with an Indian-African background. At 42, he's also the youngest prime minister in two centuries. But Rishi Sunak is also a privately educated Oxford graduate, like so many of his predecessors. How much of a change does he really represent? Well, not much of a change. He attended a you know public school. He went to Oxford. He's a banker. So he is, much like many prime ministers we've had in Britain, not representative of most British people. I mean, I'm not entirely sure how many British people can relate to a privately educated banker who attended Oxford. So he is very much of the same when it comes to being an upper-class man serving in public office. Mm. And I mean, in the lead-up to this result, there was there was nothing from Sunak on, on policy. He gave a brief statement after the announcement of his win, warning that the country faces profound economic challenges. Has he proposed how he'll tackle those challenges? He hasn't known, and I'm intrigued to see what Sunak proposes. You know, he was someone who maybe focused less on, on tax cuts than... You know, list trust and, and his economic agenda will be interesting to see how that unfolds. I think Sunak has sold himself and he's campaigned on the idea of economic competence. So if you compare how he launched his leadership campaign to 
to Penny Morden. Penny Morden's focused on being an ordinary person who could reach out to British people because she understands what they're going through. Sunak focused on the fact that he was Chancellor and he's economically competent. So I guess for Sunak, the big thing for, for, for Sunak and, and being Prime Minister will be that budget on the 31st of October and what that looks like and how that will affect British people. Mm. Now, the opposition Labour Party and a sizable chunk of the country, I think 66%, according to a YouGov poll, believe that Sunak doesn't have a mandate and should call a general election. He's ruled that out. Could he win an election? I don't think he could. So where, where Labour are polling in terms of you know, numbers, they're polling well clear of the Conservatives in most polls. So YouGov, most, most kind of reliable polls are having Labour well ahead. So I think at the moment, there's no incentive for the Conservative Party to call in general election because they know that you know, things wouldn't turn out that well for them at general election. So I'm less convinced that Sunak could win an election right now. But look, two years is a long time in politics. So much could change between now and when we are set to have a general election in two years' time. Mm. Now, he's warned his party that they have to unite or die. But as the internecine warfare has shown after the, uh, over the last couple of months, the Tories seem to be ripping themselves apart. Is unity even an option? Well, unity can be more of an option under Sunak. So if you remember Liz Truss' government, she thought her government was people who, you know, supported her political ideology and she kind of shunned those who maybe didn't support her kind of political ideals in the Conservative Party. Sunak, what it looks like he's going to do with his cabinet is actually try and b- b- build a kind of a coalition of members from across the party. I think that would be a really important step in, in, in building unity, getting people across the party together in government, making these important decisions together. Can the Conservative Party ever be unified? That's a difficult thing. We've been discussing unity in the Conservative Party since the days of David Cameron and, and Brexit. So ultimately, we have to accept this is where the Conservative Party are. They are a broad church. They do have these big camps that often clash with one another. But let's hope soon that can kind of ease those tensions because at the moment what Britain needs and what we need is is less political turmoil and more kind of compassion and competence in public office. Mm. Now one of those big camps is the European Research Group, the ERG, a very influential group of right-wing Tories. They refused to endorse either candidate and they had very strong words on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Why are they so powerful and what do they want with NI? Well, they're really powerful because obviously we know when it came to Brexit and how influential they were. And that's really when they rise to prominence during the Brexit referendum. And you know, MPs like Steve Baker, these MPs sort of really rise to prominence during this period. And I guess when it comes to Northern Ireland, obviously we have the deadline. So it's really important that government is formed. Otherwise, there will be elections triggered in that's Northern Friday, Ireland. That's Friday, the deadline. Yeah, yeah, the deadline's on Friday. So it is really, really important that does happen pretty soon, the government being formed. And, and again, less political turmoil and more kind of clarity in terms of Britain's future. We are at this really crucial moment in Britain's future where we have these kind of interconnected crises we face as a nation. And right now, what British people, I think, want and what we desire is, yes, there are calls about a general election. Yes, there are talks about, you know, this is someone who hasn't got a mandate. But more than anything, we just want an end to kind of this constant unease and turmoil. Mm. The ERG seem to be actually threatening whoever won, though. They did, yeah. And I, I, so again, it's part of the divided nature of the Conservative Party and the idea that I think with the Conservative Party, there are so some MPs who just wouldn't have accepted anyone apart from Boris Johnson, for example, and were really behind the idea of he won the mandate in twenty nineteen. Yes, he messed up, but he's back to save the party. And maybe the RG are amongst those who 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 share that point of view. But yeah, they, they've been quite hostile to, to, to kind of both leading candidates in, in, in Morden and Sunak. And I, and I wonder why that is. Mm. Um, you talked about uniting uh, the party through his cabinet picks. Do you know who those might be? 
So Mordant has been tipped for a big position and Mordant is someone who hasn't actually served as one of like the, you know, maybe the great forces of state or, or anything like that. She's run for prime minister twice now and I think lots of people don't actually know who she is. So I teach politics at university in, in Royal Holloway and I shared, you know, Penny Mordant to my students and none of them knew who she was. They knew who Sunak was, but none of them knew Penny Mordant was. So for her, I think it would be nice to kind of serve as maybe one of the four great forces of state and, and see how she does. Hunt is the big decision for, for Sunak because Hunt is currently the Chancellor who's kind of reversed the Liz Truss disastrous community budget. Does Sunak stick with him or not? That's the big, big decision for him. So actually, that's unclear. So Sunak's cabinet will be a very interesting cabinet because I imagine, like I said earlier, he's going to draw, try to draw from you know all parts of the Conservative Party and how that looks in practice remains to be seen. Mm. And do you think that he, if provided he also sticks with the Chancellor, but will he stick to the 31st of October to re- release an economic statement that charts the, the next steps forward? I think he will. I think what Stunak wanted to do from the office, and, he, and again, he sold himself as the economically competent candidate. So he's going to try and, you know, put together his economic agenda as soon as possible. He knows that the cost of living crisis is probably the most spoken about crisis in Britain at the moment is something that affects so many people in Britain it's something that we all care about and I think he wants to set up really clearly right from the off this is my economic agenda this is how I'm going to make your life better Mm. Can he ever understand that? I mean he's one of the richest men in the country Again it remains to be seen he is you know the richest MP we've ever had I think he's married to a billionaire I believe he's a millionaire himself he was privately educated so can he relate to the ordinary British person? It remains to be seen. I mean, let's talk about you know, him being the first British Indian to serve in, in high office, and that's obviously remarkable in many ways, but can he relate to the average ethnic minority voter or the average Indian, given how wealthy he is, given his, his background? So actually, it really is important to talk about intersectionality and how class might intersect with race in many ways, because most minorities in Britain are working class. Sunak is very much not working class. He's an upper-class man. So can he relate to British people and maybe minority voters? That remains to be seen in my in my view. Now, I mean, love or loathe his politics, uh, he said yesterday he will show integrity and unity, two qualities markedly absent in the leadership since 2019. Do you think Britain finally has a Prime Minister we don't have to be embarrassed about? Well, look, you know, Liz Truss managed to combine, you know, two of the weirdest qualities of her predecessors. So she combined the awkwardness of, of Theresa May with the incompetence of Boris Johnson. The less said about Johnson, the better. We, we know how his time in office went. So, look, Sunak will be a, an improvement of both of those candidates. I, I, do, I do believe that. I guess the challenge for Sunak is, what does that economic agenda look like? You sold yourself as the economically competent candidate. You need to make sure that that kind of is something you deliver on, because if you don't, then there will be huge pressure on Sunak, given that he's a former Chancellor, sold himself as being economically competent. That's his real, real big challenge. So if he does that well, then, you know, you know who knows when Conservatives will be polling in a year or two's time. Michael, thank you very much indeed. That's Michael Bancolo there. And you're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24.
It's 8.11 in Berlin and 7.11 here in London. The International Expert Conference on the Recovery, Reconstruction and Modernization of Ukraine takes place in Berlin today. It's hosted by the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and Chancellor Olaf Schulz, as Germany currently holds the presidency of the G7. It's another important step in a series of global events. The EU says the discussion will contribute to shaping global efforts on the way ahead for Ukraine's green resilient, prosperous and democratic future. Well, I'm joined on the line by Jacob Kierkegaard, who's Senior Fellow at the German Marshall Fund's office in Brussels. Jacob, many thanks for coming on The Globalist. I wonder if you could give us some background on this. How does it relate or follow on from the previous uh, Lugano conference, the Ukraine Recovery Conference? Well, to be frank, that is a very good question, because I think uh, there's no doubt that at the Lugano conference, which was sort of the first coming out of the Ukrainian government, that's where they they presented their big recovery plan, uh, there wasn't really much of a response uh, in the sense that the donor, the Western donor countries, donor institutions in the international financial community, etc., they didn't really have a plan. Uh, so there were many of us who were hoping that uh, you would have a plan and that this plan would begin to be implemented in Berlin. Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case because we have a, a strange disconnect, I would say, between the very senior headlining by both von der Leyen and Olaf Scholz of this conference uh, and then you know, this realization that this is just, quote-unquote, another expert conference. Mm. There isn't going to be, actually, sort of negotiations among top policymakers about making commitments of financing, etc., to Ukraine. That is for later. So in some ways, this is still a bit of a placeholder, actually, uh, uh, you know, in the path towards uh, delivering aid for Ukraine also in the long run. And, and who's taking part, as, as, as we know, von der Leyen, Schultz, but, but as you say, no other big names? Well, there are, I mean, the, the official sector representation, you know, there are uh, representatives, uh, there are prime ministers, the Ukrainian prime minister is there, uh, there are very senior officials also from uh, the Indonesian G7, uh, sorry, G20 presidency. Uh, but then, you know, from the United States, for instance, uh, there are no senior uh, <clears throat> member of the Biden administration, um, so it is. And then, and then, a lot of quote unquote just experts, people who have done this kind of stuff before. Um, but that, what that means is that we're not having actual negotiations about financial commitments by uh, top policymakers, which certainly many of us had hoped that mm. we'd already be at that stage. So there'll be no financial pledges made, for instance. I mean, one can hope that, for instance, Ursula von der Leyen uh, comes up with uh, a plan for what the uh, European Commission plans to propose. But the problem, of course, for her is that she doesn't have her own money. She can just plan and, you know, coerce or nudge the European member states, the EU member states, to uh, cough up more money. Um, But clearly, uh, Olaf Scholz, uh, from Germany, have not, uh, you know, it's not on his agenda to make new commitments because uh, undoubtedly this would cause him domestic troubles in his coalition uh, uh, in Berlin. Uh, so, no, I mean, this is a, unfortunately, there is a real risk here, in my opinion, that this becomes a talking shop. And how much money does Ukraine actually need to rebuild? 
Well, obviously, it, it's depending on um, what we define as rebuilding. Uh, in the eyes of the Ukrainian government itself, they view the um, EU accession process, reconstruction, decarbonization of the economy as a sort of an integrated process. That is where they came up with a number that said the total investment need in the Ukrainian economy to reach all those goals is $750 billion over the next uh, 10 years. That's much higher than the number for physical rebuilding of the infrastructure that has been destroyed in the war. There are different estimates. Uh, the Kiev School of Economics has an estimate of about $120 billion. Um, and then you have a World Bank study that is somewhat more comprehensive uh, that talks about a long-term overall bill of about $350 billion. Uh, so certainly it is a large bill, and obviously the way Russia conducts the war right now by deliberately bombing civil infrastructure, that adds to the war, or sorry, to the bill uh, on an ongoing basis. Now, when Ukraine, if Ukraine receives funding from Western nations, do you think there'll be strings attached? And how robustly can one guard against corruption in a post-war country when, when the war ends? I mean, Ukraine does have a history of, of financial mismanagement and graft. Yeah, I mean, there will certainly be strings attached, uh, as there should be, because we're talking about literally billions of taxpayers' money. Uh, one challenge will be to try to coordinate that uh, conditionality so that you don't get one set of conditions from the EU, one from the United States, and one from other uh, donor institutions. Uh, And then, of course, as you mentioned, yes, Ukraine has historically had a major corruption problem. So certainly there is a major task incumbent upon the Ukrainian government itself, civil society in Ukraine, indeed the entire society of Ukraine to, uh, quote, quite frankly, do better. Mm. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm quite optimistic that you don't fight a war of survival in the way that the Ukrainians do just to go back to the same old bad ways. Mm. I, actually, I really do believe that the Ukrainian society coming out of this is going to be one that wants to embrace the West, that wants to have uh, democracy and rule of law and uh, a much less corrupt uh, daily life. Uh, but there's a work ahead for them. Do you think that the original 1948 Marshall Plan serves as a a useful template for Ukraine's huge reconstruction needs? I mean, I think it's aspirational in the sense that I think, by and large, the original Marshall Plan succeeded uh, in uh, anchoring the recipient countries uh, in the quote-unquote West democracy, market economy status. Um, But, of course, it's sort of the inverse situation in Ukraine. In, in 1948, you had one donor country, the United States, and one set of a large number of recipient countries. So basically, it was the U.S. Congress and, and, and the U.S. government that set the rules. Now it's different. Now you have a lot of donor countries, donor institutions, and one recipient country. So the challenge, therefore, is for all the different donors, and that's why this conference you know, should be uh, quite important, uh, even if it's not actionable on financial terms, is that if the donors need to coordinate among themselves who does what, how, you know, when and how much does it cost. Mm. I mean, why is it taking so long, though, for those pledges that have already been made to actually be actioned? 
Well, certainly on the on the on the <clears throat> on the part of the EU, uh, they made uh, a number of financial pledges uh, back in June, and that took a long time, uh, simply because of bickering among the uh, members of the EU. Some some countries like Germany wanted to do uh, fiscal grants. Uh, Others wanted long-term concessional loans under the expectations that such loans would never be repaid. Um, so it, it fundamentally, that the EU is quite a cumbersome machine when it comes to these uh, So You have to have agreement among 27 nations. Each have a different agenda. Obviously, Viktor Orban in Hungary wants his own money from the EU uh, uh, and that whole set of things. In, this, in many ways, the United States or, or the UK or other countries, they have one government, they have one parliament, and they take a decision and that's it. Mm. Uh, uh, so, so the EU has been slow. Uh, uh, there's no doubt about that. And so the, the major takeaway then from this is that, yes, this meeting's taking place, that's a good thing, but not to expect much out of it. Yes, I, I think, unfortunately, that is the case. Uh, pledges, it seems, uh, will only be truly on the agenda at the next set of uh, uh, donor meetings in London at some point early next year. Uh, so, yes, we'll have to wait a little bit more to have the money actually on the table. Jacob, thank you very much indeed. That was Jacob Kierkegaard from the GMF in Berlin. Now, still to come on today's programme. You're waiting for the story to kind of rebel a little bit and say, no, you're underestimating me. Sit there until you figure it out. And so when that happens, you, you know the story is going to be uh, surprising to, to you, the writer, which is the, the goal. Booker Prize winner George Saunders sits down with Monocle's Rob Bound to discuss his new collection, Liberation Day. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Next month, Malaysia goes to the polls in a snap election. To explain why that was necessary and to tell us what happens next, I'm joined by Bridget Welsh, an honorary research associate with the University of Nottingham Asia Research Institute, Malaysia. Uh, Bridget, thank you for coming on the show. There was a coup in Malaysia in 2020, but to understand the political landscape and the relationship between the leaders of the opposition parties, we need to look a, a little further back to the 1990s when Mahathir Mohamad served his first term as Prime Minister. Now, Anwar Ibrahim was his deputy at that point. Can you tell us what happened? Well, you saw a reform movement uh, emerge to against the kind of dominant coalition that held government um, and that basically pushing for more democratic reforms and open and better governance. Uh, and that movement gained traction until uh, members of different parties were elected in 2018. In 2020, we saw a 
a reconfiguration of that that uh, coalition where members who have been elected defected to the other side it isn't necessarily as a coup per se, but a change in government through a different coalition. And we've had essentially four different prime ministers in Malaysia in the last four years, which is an unprecedented uh, level of uh, uh, political change at the top. The uh, country is going through a very radical uh, and very significant democratic transition. I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is the fact that uh, Anwar was actually arrested and th- thrown inside by Mataher. Yeah, he was. But for most Malaysians now who are young, that period is very much in the past. I think right now, you know, some of the older generation remember that period of time. But, you know, what's important for this particular election are going to be the younger voters. Uh, in fact, Malaysia has increased the number, uh, they lowered the voting age to 18, and about, you know, at least one-third of the electorate are going to be new voters this time. So they're looking towards the future, not the past. But mm-hmm. very much so, Anwar is one of the candidates for the opposition. But there are three coalitions running this time. And it is a very uh, more complex politics than it was at that particular time in the late 1990s. I mean, the reason I bring it up is that Matahir is very keen to unite with Anwar once again. And given their history, I wonder if that's likely to happen and if, if, if the government can be changed unless the opposition unite. Mahathir Mohamed is 97 years old. The opposition will not work with him at this point. He's running in 120 seats. His party did very poorly in a state election. I think he'll be lucky if he wins a few seats. Uh, he does create a narrative, uh, especially, you know, for, for the news. But in terms of voters, they're looking towards the future. They're looking towards those of the, 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 the different the main coalitions, of which Mahathir is not part of any. The opposition parties uh, have both from both different coalitions in the opposition have said they will not work with him. And I think what we see is a situation where these coalitions are really trying to gear their uh, campaigns towards the current uh, circumstances. So Mahathir uh, may have had, he had his second chance and he, and it it was ended in 2020. Mm. What are the strong policies coming out from, from the opposition coalitions? Well, we see there are three main coalitions. Of course, the, the traditional uh, uh, Barisan National or UMNO, they're going in, they're pushing this idea of stability, which is very ironic because they're one that has actually quite been pretty stabilizing force for the last four years. Their biggest problem is that they have their leaders, uh, the two different contenders for prime minister, one official and one leading the, par- leading the party as the party president, are actually seen to be not very popular uh, within the largest uh, part of the society. Then you have the second coalition, which is led by Anwar Ibrahim, uh, more reform-oriented. They, their government, uh, when they were in power, uh, when Mahathir was leading this coalition from 2018 to 2020, that government was actually more unstable and had a lot of infighting, including the relationship between Mahathir and Anwar. Uh, what we are seeing is that they're pushing issues of good governance and reform, um, and, and that, I think, is a, a very much at a sense of these uh, ideals, but for many Malaysians, they're focusing on the issues of the economy. The third coalition is a coalition of defectors uh, from the, the government that was elected in 2018, plus the Islamist Party, and they're trying to use a more kind of conservative um, agenda, uh, focusing on kind of policy delivery and service delivery, but at the same time, you know, a more exclusive um, agenda that re- that reflects the kind of differences in Malaysia's ethnic ag- ethnic composition. So they kind of represent one larger community. 
So we see three different kind of different visions, one more democratic, one more conservative, and one more exclusionary that are actually uh, uh, engaging. The specific policy initiatives are, unfortunately, many of the campaigns have not yet released them. One of the new players is the youth party that has also joined uh, Anwar Ibrahim in the pact. So we're seeing kind of a diversification. We also see issues coming from East Malaysia as well, looking for more decentralization. So we see a more, you know, kind of complex, robust, very different narratives than in the past. Mm. Uh, and, and finally, you're travelling around rural Malaysia at present. How are you finding the mood? Um, it's a bit of, it's messy because there's a lot of confusion about what the different parties stand for. There isn't very clear messaging. I think there is kind of excitement among many young voters to have, they know that the, the future of the country holds, is in their hands. Uh, people are sort of watching. Some of the older older voters are a bit um, more, you know, cynical about what, what what's going to be on offer. Um, I think and what is on offer. Um, but I think uh, that Malaysians take their elections very seriously, and uh, and they vote in reasonably high numbers compared to other countries. And I think uh, the campaign officially starts next Saturday, uh, and I expect we're going to see a rather intense um, uh, mobilization over the next three weeks. Bridget, thank you very much indeed. That was Bridget Walsh there talking to us from Malaysia. Here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. The UN's nuclear watchdog will send a team of inspectors to Ukraine following a request from the government in Kyiv. It's understood that inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency will examine sites for signs of undeclared nuclear activities. Rishi Sunak officially becomes Prime Minister today in Britain after winning the Conservative Party leadership contest. Sunak, who is the UK's third Prime Minister in seven weeks, has warned that the UK faces a profound economic challenge. It's been revealed that senior members of Vietnam's ruling Communist Party will visit Beijing next week on the invitation of China's President Xi Jinping. China is Vietnam's largest trading partner. However, the details of the visit have not been disclosed. And the US space agency NASA has announced that it has created a special panel to study UFO sightings. The 16-member group, which includes experts from diverse scientific fields, will focus its inquiry exclusively on unclassified sightings. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, yesterday on The Globalist, we looked at the domestic impact of the Communist Party Congress in China, which concluded over the weekend. And today, we want to examine the foreign policy implications of the CCP's most important meeting in years. Well, to help us do that, we're joined by Steve Tsang, who's the director of the China Institute at SOAS here in London. Steve, many thanks for coming on the programme again. Do you think it's fair to say that now Xi Jinping has given himself another possibly indefinite term as the leader of the Communist Party, China could be described as a totalitarian state. Well, China is a near totalitarian state, or if you like, a digital totalitarian state, rather than the old-fashioned totalitarian state. In the Maoist era, when China was a full totalitarian state of the old sense, it controlled people's lives in every respect. It doesn't do so now. But it's seeking to do so more and more, it would appear. Well, it is certainly seeking to shape people's mind, to make people all think about the same main political thoughts and for people to act out in the same way as what Xi Jinping would call patriotic Chinese. In that sense, it is 
going in that direction. Now, Xi Jinping says the world system is broken and China has the answers. What are those answers? Well, the way how Xi Jinping sees the world is based on his reconstruction of an old Chinese concept called Ten Sha, or under heavens. Under this concept, China is the best, most civilized and magnificent country in the world and sets the model of how things are to be done. If everybody else follows China's model and leadership, the world will be at peace. There will be no conflict. So which specific foreign policies towards the West did she outline at the Congress? I mean, is there any indication that he intends to modify his approach to foreign policy or will there be more continuity than change? I think is continuity, but with an emphasis on the importance of what he called struggle or the determinations to overcome all challenges that the changing international environment may throw at China. In the Congress, he underlined that the biggest challenge China faces moving forward are anti-China forces in other countries. And with all people in China united behind him, China will overcome. That's his message. He also changed the constitution to say that China will resolutely oppose and deter Taiwan independence. Is this a declaration of intent? Do we expect an attack? It's a reaffirmation of intent. Xi Jinping has always intended to teach Taiwan since he became leader of China. It's a question of timing and how to do so. His preferred solution is Taiwan surrendering, therefore peacefully uniting Taiwan with China. But if Taiwan will not surrender, then he will use force and he will also use force to crush any foreign country that may come to Taiwan, say that is his intention. And what's China's relationship with Russia going forward? Well, China will want to have a strategic partnership with Russia or indeed maintain that strategic partnership they have. Xi Jinping and Putin have very strong personal relationship and that personal relationship at the moment underlies the China-Russia relations, even though there are structural problems between China and Russia as countries and neighbours. Now, EU countries are struggling to calibrate their approach to China as a superpower. Uh, We know that Olaf Schulz will be the first Western leader to travel to Beijing after Xi's confirmation. Uh, That'll be on the 3rd of November. Do you have any insight regarding China's Europe policy, particularly when it comes to Germany? Well, Germany is the single most important country in Europe that China wants to engage in because Germany has technology and investments in China that the Chinese government wants. So Xi Jinping's government will try to engage with uh, Germany and other willing members of the EU to try to divide the EU and make sure that the EU does not come up with a single policy towards China that is going to be more robust than it has been previously. Mm. And finally, Steve, Washington's accused Beijing of trying to undermine US alliances, global security and economic rules. I mean, are we heading to another Cold War? Perhaps we're already in it. Well, the US-China relationship has made significant structural changes. Uh, Washington is very uncomfortable with the rise of China. The Chinese government basically blamed Washington for all kinds of problems in the world, 
including the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they accuse the United States as the main cause, United States and NATO as the main cause for the war in Ukraine. So yes, the problem is going to continue and get worst. Steve, thank you very much indeed. That's Steve Tsang there. And this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. It's 8.37 in Paris, 7.37 here in London, and we'll continue now with today's newspapers. I'm joined on the line from Paris by Agnès Poirier, who's a journalist and author of Notre Dame, the Soul of France. Agnès, are you in your studio? Can you see Notre Dame from your lovely balcony? Yes, I can. (laughs) And is it rising? Um, well, the, the scaffoldings are shining, I can tell you that, <laughs> in electric light. Um, now, we've been so busy navel-gazing here in Britain that we almost it almost passed us by that something rather momentous happened in French politics yesterday. Well, exactly. You know, we, we tend to concentrate on Italy and, and, and Britain these days. Uh, but yes, well, I'm going to refresh your memory. Perhaps last April, President Macron was uh, handsomely re-elected president against Marine Le Pen. But the legislative elections uh, that followed failed to deliver an absolute majority for him in parliament. So um, it meant that his government had to build a consensus for each vote. And you know that France is not. So doesn't have such a strong culture of compromise and consensus. But so far, it had gone well. And the far right of Marine Le Pen, wanting wanting to look responsible, uh, if you'd like, said that they wouldn't obstruct for the sake of it. Well, that was until yesterday, because they did just this in an alliance with the far left. That sort of shocked the government, but also the rest of the country. So uh, there were two votes of no confidence in the government yesterday. Both failed, of course, as they don't have the numbers, but, you know, it's not nothing. 289 votes. Mm. Um And so basically, I think you can expect more of this in the next few weeks and months. And uh, the extremes are flexing their muscles and they intend to make life quite difficult for Macron and, of course, his prime uh, minister, Elizabeth uh, Bourne. So it's going to be a bumpy bumpy road ahead uh, and uh, at a time when Macron wants to actually speed up and and do as many reforms as he can, because, as you may uh, realize, he cannot. Um, you know, run again in five years' time. Mm. Bumpy road ahead, speed up. Let's go with those motoring metaphors <laughs> and talk about French cars. Well, that's the front page of uh, Le Parisien. It, it sounds very exciting, basically. Uh, Macron wants um, French uh, electric cars to to uh, become more uh, um, present in on the roads uh, of France because, of course, the China the Chinese uh, car manufacturers are far ahead of us, especially in Europe, uh, and they already um, offer very affordable electric cars. Well, as a you know, if you contrast them with French cars, and uh, they uh, represent 20% of the market. So how is Macron going to do this? Well, he wants uh, integrated electric car plants throughout France. And uh, Renault will make his future 4L 
R5 and Alpine, um, giving you the names of the new uh, e-cars models uh, in the north of France. Stellantis has announced the production of 12 different models and Citroën and Peugeot will continue doing what, what they did. I mean, the car industry in France, you know, of course, is not what it used to be, but it still employs 800,000 people. And, uh, uh, you know, there's huge challenge, but it looks as if the government, the French government is, is raising to the challenge. For instance, the state subsidy has been raised to 7,000 euros for anyone who uh, are ready to ditch their old car for an electric one. Um, and actually, things are moving because the first plant of lithium batteries is going to, to be open later this year in France. So, you know, so far, 80% of electric cars in France um, are imports. But, you know, Macron wants to change that. So we'll see. He's got, he's got five years. Mm. And presumably, of course, that's very good news for the job market. Well, yeah, well, that's the, uh, that's the idea, of course, uh, because it does, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking about potentially um, hundreds of thousands of jobs in France and, of course, in Europe, because every every Europe, European country is going to try and do the same. So, uh, yes, it's, it's a, a huge challenge, but it's possible. Mm. Finally, French bread. Well, yes. I mean, I don't know if you've had your tartine yet, uh, Georgina, <laughs> but I had mine. And uh, I really want to go to uh, Alfortville. Alfortville is just in the west a suburb of Paris. And if you uh, if you go there, just uh, uh, look for the town hall because opposite stands uh, Michel Fabre's bakery. And he got, he just uh, won the award of the best organic bread in the shape of a boule. That's quite specific. In France, um, and uh, apparently loves entering competitions. He's already had many awards: best baguette, best galette in the last twenty years. He uh, employs sixteen people, and he gives us his secret. Are you ready? I'm uh, ready. Do you have your pen? Okay. So. Uh, the secret to his bull is a slow fermentation of sourdough the night before at 12 degrees precisely. Then the baking is key. The oven must be very hot at first, 250 degrees, but then must be decreasing throughout uh, the baking process to 190 degrees. So here you are, you can go and bake uh, your uh, organic bread. Um, and it doesn't even cost a fortune because for half a kilo, uh, you'll have to um, pay 3.60 euros. That's not, not bad. So I'm, I actually do know a little bit about this because my partner's <laughs> just started a micro bakery and he does sourdough. And absolutely, oh, well, yeah. it, we, it's, it's, it's in the fridge overnight. So much so we've had to get another fridge. Oh, well. <laughs> Slightly okay. annoying, I have to say. I mean, <laughs> nice to have the bread, but not nice to live with the bread maker sometimes. <laughs> uh, Agnes, thank you very much indeed. That's Agnes Poirier. And this is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com.
It's time to talk trade and economy with Vicky Price, the economist and former joint head of the UK's government's economic service. Uh, Vicky, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Ricky, Rishi, Richie, as a lot of people are calling him, Rishi Sunak now, of course, uh, in charge. He has said that they we're facing a profound economic challenge. Uh, what else has he said? Because it seems to me it's been pretty light on policy so far. Indeed, although we do know quite a lot of what he thinks because he made that very clear during the whole contest during the summer when he was debating against Liz Trust. At that time, he lost, of course. This time, there was no one else really uh, competing against him after Liz Trust. Our previous prime minister resigned. Um, and of course, he will be prime minister, Rishi Sunak, uh, later this morning uh, or lunchtime-ish anyway. Um, after he sees the king. But he hasn't said very much, and you're absolutely right. He talked about unity because, of course, that's important. Uh, there have been disagreements between the sort of middle of the party or left of the party, if we could call it that, and and, and the more right-wing element of it in terms of various policies. But the really important thing is what's going to happen to the economy. We know he um, was not in favour of the tax cuts. Many of those have been, which uh, uh, Liz Truss and her then-Chancellor announced. He's uh, bound to be um, uh, going along with some of the reversals that Jeremy Hunt, at present still the Chancellor, announced just very recently. So uh, you will probably need to reinforce that because the markets have calmed down. They obviously think that uh, the path now is for, um, you know, better control of public finances. Uh, but there are going to be some really important decisions that still need to be made on public spending. In particular, we're going to hear more on uh, October the 31st when we have this fiscal event uh, with the analysis done by the Office of Budget Responsibility. So I think the... the, the uh, focus is going to be on on the economy there are of course loads and loads of other issues around it what do you do about migration the differences between you know different parts of the of the tory party so he urged unity so that they can move forward because obviously you know if they're looking ahead at possible election period of maybe you know two years time or maybe earlier uh, then that would be very important for the Conservatives. Mm. So October the 31st when this fiscal event happens what do we expect? Well we expect new forecast for the economy. I think that's going to be very interesting for all of us um, because the signs now are that the economy is really slowing down. There's some negative figures coming out. If you look at the latest uh, data on um, uh, what purchasing managers expect, this is a sort of index that comes out very frequently and is very up to date. It suggests contraction in the economy. We've seen uh, retail sales fall in real terms, which is quite a surprise. We hadn't seen that since the beginning, really, of 2021, uh, the odd month of fall. Uh, since then, it had been really upwards. We've seen manufacturing struggling. We've seen services more generally now being hit and um, and people's confidence drop. So um, we're going to see a little bit more about what the OBR thinks. And in that context, uh, if the economy is slowing down, it's really much more difficult to get the sort of revenues that that. Uh, the Chancellor and Rishi Sunak are going to need to have to satisfy the market. So the real concern is what's going to happen to public spending. We still don't know things about um, whether benefits are going to go up in line with inflation. We still don't know whether the triple lock for pensioners, in other words, you know, how, how far pension pensions are going to increase with the increasing line with inflation or not, although Liz Trust promised they would, whether that would still happen. Uh, what's going to happen to the electricity price freeze. I think loads of uncertainty is still there for both households and businesses. And that uncertainty isn't really going to go away uh, over you know, in the next few months. But at least we'll get a better indication of what is planned. Um, Vicky, you headed the Government Economic Service. I mean, what do you make of this? And, and, and is there an easy way out? 
well, there is no easy way out because, of course, we are in a in an international crisis. When we have a war in Europe, we have Europe slowing down uh, quite significantly as well. And we've seen some of the evidence of that in industrial production across Europe. We've seen concerns about Germany falling into recession because of the gas a supply situation and prices, of course, they have come down quite considerably, but there's still a shortage um, perceived for the winter, which is going to have to be made up. So um, we are sort of in the middle of a, a problematic period during which a country on its own can't really do an awful lot. But of course, you can mess it up as we as we almost did, um, in fact. But uh, there isn't a huge amount of, of, um, of room for manoeuvre, frankly. Uh, but what I think Rishi Sunak and his chancellor might be able to do is postpone some of the pain, if you like, to later years. I think that may satisfy the markets anyway. If there is a plan, even though quite a lot happens later, so as not to destabilise the economy too much in the short term. But at the same time, I think they're probably hoping that given everything that's happened in the last few days and the sort of greater stability we're seeing in interest rates in the long part end of the market uh, and sterling stabilizing. We might see Bank of England interest rates not go up so much. They will probably in November, but maybe from then on, not so much. So there are some rays of hope there. But in the meantime, of course, households are still being very severely squeezed. Mm, uh, and I mean, huge cost of living crisis for ordinary people, uh, so much so that uh, many people are now going on to prepayment gas and electricity meters, apparently. Yes, that's uh, those who really cannot afford to be paying by direct debit and therefore having a a cost coming out of their accounts uh, sort of every month. Uh, prepayment meters are used by, particularly actually, by people whose uh, financial situation isn't particularly good. Uh, they can, of course, just not warm up their homes, which is a bit disastrous, but the increase has been very significantly on those moving to prepayment meters. Uh, and the concern is that that will continue and that reflects very much the drop in living standards that we have been seeing over the last uh, year or so. And it's likely to continue. The forecasts are that those numbers will go up very significantly. Mm. Uh, A little bit earlier, you mentioned that gas prices in Europe are falling. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yes. The interesting thing is that uh, they've fallen to the sort of lowest levels we've seen for another month now, since June. Uh, and that's good news. Uh, they're still about, uh, you know, twice where they were a year ago, uh, but they have been coming down, which is uh, to be welcomed. But of course, Europe has been working very, very hard to replenish its stocks of gas. The gas reserves have gone up quite significantly so they can weather the winter. Uh, and the question is, you know, do they need to do an awful lot more? But remember that Europe has started a whole process of reducing energy demand um, in order to sustain the, the sort of drop of gas supplies from Russia. They've been getting it from elsewhere. So the reason why one is feeling reasonably confident in the short term is because LNG supplies have been very high coming from the States and elsewhere. So um, and that's good news for, for the moment. And of course, that takes away some of the pressure uh, for businesses and households. The real problem is, of course, uh, what will happen next and things could get tighter. And of course, we still have a the possibility of escalation of the war in Ukraine. So um, it's not we're not really in, in a permanent comfort zone yet. Mm. Vicky, thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. That was Vicky Price there. And this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. And 
finally on today's show, Booker Prize winner George Saunders is famed for his mastery of the short story form. His new collection, Liberation Day, is full of intricate and often unsettling tales of what it means to live as part of a community. He stopped by Midori House yesterday to discuss the new collection with Monocle's contributing editor, Robert Bound, who started off by asking him which story was the hardest to write. There's one called a, a thing at work, a mm-hmm. thing at work, and uh, it was hard because it's a for me it's a little toned down, just a slight bit. There's some internal monologues, but they're a little somewhat quiet, and so I had a little a, a bit of a hard time finding out what was the what was I offering in that story. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not particularly voice, and then late in the game there was kind of a rapid fire cause and effect thing that happened. I said, okay, that's the weird thing about this story. So that one was tough, but mostly they're equally tough. You know, it's kind of like at this point I know the. The process, which is you write for a while happily, you know, this is going to be so easy, and then it locks up mm-hmm. for about a, for two or three months while the story decides what it wants to be, and then you go ahead. So, so at this point, it's kind of uh, in a certain way, the harder it is, the happier I am because that means. Uh, the story is baking. You know, there's this great quote okay. uh, Einstein said, uh, no worthy problem is ever solved in the plane of its original conception. So if you have an idea about a story, if you just do that, it's a drag. Uh, so you're waiting for the story to kind of rebel a little bit and say, no, you're underestimating me. Sit there until you figure it out. And so when that happens, you, you know the story is going to be surprising to you, the writer, which is the, the goal. So some of the harder ones... You said they're all equally hard in a way. Some of the ones that you know have a memorable sticking point while mm-hmm. you're sat at your desk, whatever, are those the ones that sometimes seem to bear the most fruit in the reading back of them exactly. as, they, as they age over? Them? Yeah, it's kind of the Houdini thing. You know, if Houdini said, "Look, I have a, a small piece of string on my hand," well, that's not. <laughs> but if he really gets himself into a mess, and and even if he starts to panic a little bit, that's great, because then if he gets out, it's amazing. So in this book, there was a story called Ghoul that I started out just trying to imitate the voice of my first book, just kind of a mm-hmm. silly kind of sci-fi voice. And I got myself into a mess where I couldn't really figure out how to get out of it in the required number of pages. So that was fun. And it was, you know, definitely was sweating a little bit. Because what I'm hoping is that I can start a story in a real silly ass place. That's a technical term, silly ass. And and uh, <laughs> don't get highfalutin on this part. Yeah, <laughs> the theory. Yeah, exactly. but uh, you you start there, and then the goal is that in the end it's going to be. I always think classic, but what I mean is, no matter who you are, the story is going to speak to you about the things that matter to you, even though it started in a crazy place. So that one was hard to get, hard to find a kind of universal meaning in it mm-hmm. for all the for all the strangeness, but. You know. But the voice in Ghoul is phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's all of these stories jump off the page, and I found them deeply memorable as well. I can I can mm-hmm. remember what happened, and I can remember the characters' tones of voice, oh, and they're like that thing you stare at the sun, and you can see the imprint of it on your eye on your eyelid. Oh. You know what I mean? They're, they're very much that's like that. going on the so, cover of the paperback right there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's it's got it's really got you know it, it leaps off the page. It's beautiful stuff, and that is a tough. I mean, I mean the tone of voice that the narrator Brian has. Also, by the way, I love all your characters. The, the Van Ordinaire names of your characters. Yeah. You're going to get you're going to get nothing from the names. Such as Todd, yeah. Brian, Jeff, yeah, right, Kyle. yeah. They're not leading you anyway. Mm. Apart from maybe everyone's as ordinary as right, these right. guys, right? But that's sort of high wire act, if you like, of that of carrying off that tone of voice for that amount of pages. 
I wonder what that's like. If you if you have to kind of slot into a certain mode of thinking and of maybe impersonating Brian and his, and right his buddies. Yeah, impersonating. Yeah. I'll spend a lot of time on the first two or three pages to kind of get that voice started. And then it's kind of nice because you drop in the next day, you reading two or three pages and it, the voice generates. Mm -hmm. The secondary trick is if you can do it, it's nice for that voice to evolve a little bit. So as the character, uh, maybe in this in this book, they tend to come come awake a little bit. They, they realize they've been lied to or that they're deceived. So if you can get that voice to expand over the course of the story, that's that's the goal. But I was always, as a kid, loved to do impersonations and voices. And so it's kind of channeling that a little bit. But once you've done it for two pages, then it, it something in your brain just says, oh, I know that voice and I can I can keep doing it. Yeah, yeah. you can get into the you can get into the mode. I feel like is it, it's a bit, bit like being a ghostwriter for a footballer or a musician or something, but you're inventing that footballer, that musician, right? Exactly you're inventing these right. characters that's and you just have to slot in and go, they, they're a bit like this. This oh, is how they sound. These are their points of view. Yeah. Something that's it. like that. That's it. And then, you know, what you're hopefully doing is you're finding ways to be poetic in that voice. So mm. it, to just do a crazy voice for no reason isn't so good. But with him especially, you, I found that he could... He was actually pretty good at describing places because he had such a, an unusual diction that he could just end, you know, keep adding clauses on. And uh, yeah. so, so it's interesting to just try to say, um, this is a strange voice. If I overflow it, it's going to be poetry. That's George Saunders there in conversation with Monocle's Robert Bound, and that was all about his new collection of short stories, Liberation Day. Uh, you can hear the full conversation on an upcoming episode of Monocle on Culture, and if you can't wait, do head to Meet the Writer's Archives, where there's an interview with him that we did once he'd won the Booker Prize for Lincoln in the Bardo, so you can hear him talk about that book and about his life and work. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Rhys James, Emma Searle and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands, and our studio manager, Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way, and the briefing is live at midday in London. And The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.